Hello and welcome back to the After Ellen podcast. I'm your host, Jocelyn McDonald, Editor-in-Chief of After Ellen, and I am here with Nisha Ganatra. We're going to be talking about her new film, The High Note. Uh, the High Note is a new movie that stars Tracy Ellis Ross and Dakota Fanning. And Dakota Johnson. <laughs> wow, thank you. I love that. Everybody does that. It's really yes. funny. I feel like my <laughs> special power is recognizing celebrity faces. So I've never been more embarrassed than I am in this moment. <laughs> oh, really? That's like the opposite of my special power. I will be talking to a full-on celebrity, have zero idea who I'm talking to. And then my friends around me will start acting weird. And then I'll know I must be talking to a celebrity because everyone around me is acting really weird. And then after they walk away, I'll go, are you? And then they'll all be like, Julia Roberts, you (laughs) idiot. (laughs) Do you have that like face recognition? There's like a disorder where you can't recognize people's faces. I mean, I hope I don't have that because that would be really hard as a director, but I definitely um, recognize, like I have trouble recognizing celebrities in their regular non-celebrity mode. Like in a movie, I'll know that's that actor from movie to movie, but when I see them in real life, I'll just walk right by them and not know that's them. So give us a quick um, synopsis of the high note. Oh my God, what's a quick synopsis high note? So unprepared. (laughs) Um, the High Note is a story about Grace Davis, a music icon, who is uh, hit a point in her career where she's kind of deciding if she's going to take the safe road and do a Vegas residency or if she's going to um, take a little riskier road and decide if she's going to get back to sort of recording original songs and the things that made her an icon in the first place. And her assistant, uh, Maggie, who... Um, unbeknownst to everyone has secret aspirations of becoming a music producer and is also kind of at a crossroads where she's going to decide if she's going to keep going down the safe path of being an um, assistant or if she's going to strike out and try to be a music producer and take a risk as well. So it's kind of about these two women who are in each other's lives in this um, very intimate way, but have their own ambitions and desires and, um, and careers that they're, they're really have their own hopes and dreams. I just finished watching the movie and I thought it was fantastic. It was so funny. I was kind of surprised actually, because the script is really tight and it, there were just, um, you know, crescendoing moments of laughter throughout the film. And it, it, uh, it was very fresh comedy. Um, and I was especially surprised because it's sort of a rom-com where the primary romance <laughs> is between Maggie, the young aspiring producer, and her love of music, her love of work. Um, but there's a secondary love story going on, too, um, that features a very sweet romance. And it actually had the cutest meet cute of any rom-com I've seen in so long. <laughs> Um, it really did. <laughs> I'm such a big fan of like those great old fashioned studio comedies. And I say old fashioned now, meaning the nineties <laughs> because they used to make these great studio rom-coms and then they just stopped making them. And I don't know why I was like, what happened to all those, you know, really fun movies with female leads? Like 
you know, where did Julia Stiles career go? Where, where are all these movies that we would just leave the theater feeling happy and like fun. And like, we laughed at Hugh Grant and we had fun, you know, like there was all this sort of this uplifting, joyful feeling we would get from watching these um, studio comedies and it just felt like they weren't making them anymore. So I was really psyched when I read the script. I was like, oh my God, this is like a big Hollywood comedy and I love it. Yeah, I actually have a rom-com club with my family where we we watch rom-coms together and we, we love rom-coms. But you're exactly right. Like there was a time, there was like a golden age between when Harry met Sally and You've Got Mail and, and definitely a few um, later into the aughts. There's like a few standouts in the aughts. But like we really lost the thread as far as rom-com goes with, um, gosh, what is that horrible one with um, the the lady from Grey's Anatomy and G- Gerard? Uh, it's, it's, I don't mean. Something about dressers. Is it something with like, the word dress? Oh, 27 dresses is really bad. Yeah, that's a really bad. Oh, yeah. It's almost <laughs> like about like a shock jock um, television host. Uh, I don't know. It's just we women deserve better and and i think like we um rom-coms are like women's movies and they stopped catering to what women actually want to see and um yeah i think that ties into your film because this film is really a, a story about women and it passes the Bechdel test in every scene. It's a story about women and their, and the strong relationships that they have. And I noticed about uh, that same dynamic in um, late night and I haven't seen all of your other films, but it seems like you really choose stories that have really strong female relationships and stories where women are uplifting each other. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really um, important to me that it be, um, you know, a movie where women are uplifting each other and not like, you know, too many times we see these movies where the women are supporting each other in the beginning, but then they turn around and stab each other in the back or, you know, are each other's worst enemies. And I feel like we just need to see more stories where women hold each other up and help each other rise up and don't um, be each other's worst enemies, but be each other's greatest support systems um because we can really be that in life and I find so many times that's what women are for me in my life so why am I not seeing that reflected and anything I'm watching you know and it just was also a really fun movie where these two women were at a crossroads about deciding if they were going to take a big risk and this movie like tells these women to take big risks and then it rewards them for it greatly you know and I feel like there's just this time where women are not only just being punished in movies for taking risks, but like literally killed for it. You know, like it's, it's not such a subtle message, what we're saying to women when we make movies like that and put that message out there, it's um, depressing and it's setting us back and, and it's not um, for the benefit of anybody in our society. So I never want to support those films or make those films. And um, this was just a really, great way I think to be fun and entertaining and funny first but really have a message and something you can stand behind and say underneath it so how did you find this script or how did you choose it well um it had come to me I'd read Flora Greeson wrote the script it was in the in the blacklist which is like a 
collection of the very best scripts that were not produced for whatever dumb reason, you know? And so, um, usually because a woman or a person of color wrote it. <laughs> and so we, um, you know, I, I got a call about, about working title, making this film and working title is a company that makes all those movies you and I love. And so when I heard working title, I was like, Oh, I want to go work with working title. I mean, every time I see their logo, I know I'm going to watch a really good movie. Um, it was at Universal Studios, another studio whose movies I always love, and then Focus Features, which you know is also an incredibly filmmaker-friendly studio. Um, so when I read it, it just was such a page turner, and it was so smart and funny, and the music just came alive on the page, and I really just wanted to um, make this movie. And then I realized it's a studio film, and I'm never going to be allowed to make a studio film. Um, but you know. It was really interesting because it was a female producer who brought me in to interview and I, um, sh you know, gave her my take on the movie and she really liked it. And then she helped me figure out how to convince the studio executives to let me direct it. And then uh, it was really great timing because it was right after Sundance and Late Night made a huge impression at Sundance. And so right when that happened, it really solidified my um, getting the job to direct this movie. It was really easy. I just had to like, you know, have the biggest sale at Sundance. <laughs> no big deal. And then I got this opportunity. So yeah, for people super who easy. Don't know much about the behind the scenes of of movie production, why why did you initially think that you would never get to direct a studio movie? Um, I think I never initially thought that. I went into directing thinking I get I could make those movies that I love in the studio films, but then um, no women do, you know, like I think the studios hire like one or two women a year, if that, to direct a studio film. And you just kind of, I didn't even realize I'd close that door in my own head. It just sort of was one of the things that I thought, oh, wow, I didn't even notice when I stopped thinking of myself, that path as an option for myself, you know? Um, and I think the day that I pulled up to Universal Studios and the gate literally went up and I was driving onto the lot, I realized how I had just told myself somewhere along the line unconsciously that um, this wasn't for me, you know? And so that is, that was the most upsetting thing to realize was that I had closed that door on my own opportunities in my own head unknowingly and unconsciously. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that is, that is. <laughs> um, so you had mentioned one of the things about the script was that the music really came alive right off the page. And um, I think that one of the things that is the best aspect of this film is the, is the music, the writing, um, the, the lyrics are, are really tight and the, um, the songs are all catchy. I could, I could hear any of them being like things that I sing in the shower. So one of the yeah. things that made me think about is that as you're directing a film that's about being a, a, a music producer, I mean, are you a musician? I am not a musician. Uh, no, I think I, I mean, I'm a big music lover and a big music fan. And um, I think, you know, I have pretty um, commercial tastes in music. So I, it was a good skill to have when I was listening to all the demos, I could kind of, hear what was going to be a hit on the radio and what I felt like I would be singing along to. And it turns out that's kind of, you know, 
the most common thing, I think. So it sometimes really serves you to have super um, commercial tastes. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was about, it was just such a dream. Like you'd look at who was submitting these demos and, you know, Corinne Bailey Ray wrote her the original song for the movie that I'm so thankful she let us have because she could have sang that herself and it would be huge hit on the radio. Sarah Ahrens, who's written every sort of hit song you hear on the radio she gave me her demos and I just, I, I remember calling her and she said, which one did you like? And I said, all of them. And I really put all of them in the movie. I mean, she gave me a demo for track eight, which is the, um, the song David sings in the, um, demo in the recording studio. She, um, her demo was for love myself, which uh, became the big song that was released for our soundtrack first. Um, and she even wrote like I do, which, um, originally was a song I think she wrote for Tracy Ellis Ross's character. And then, um, I decided to give that song to Kelvin Harrison Jr.'s character and then turn it into a duet for, um, later in the movie. So it was really, it was just a really fun process of like picking songs, producing the songs, working with this incredible team to really like, um, make this music album. And then, make the movie go along with that music album and teach those actors how to sing those songs and play those instruments. It was really, it was quite the undertaking that I did not uh, foresee. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it definitely came across as very um, natural. It definitely seemed like the, um, the production of the production was authentic. Oh my gosh. Did you see that cat hair just fly by the <laughs> <laughs> I have a long-haired cat. Um, yeah, he's he's furry. Anyway, um, yeah. So, um, talk to me a little bit more about that. You you talked about um, the actors singing and um, playing these instruments. How did you cultivate the chemistry between these actors, and how'd you bring this out of them? Um. Well. The music for sure helped like set the mood. And, you know, I had these A-list people. I had Linda Cohen as our music supervisor, Rodney Jerkins, the legendary Rodney Jerkins was our music producer. Um, Mike Noblock and Natalie Hayden from Universal Music were sort of overseeing and helping us. And, and then they brought like these incredible songwriters in. So once I kind of figured out this is the songwriter and her demos are going to be Maggie Sound and, then we would also just have the actors go into the studio. They said they felt like it was American Idol and that they were battling for songs because we'd have them demo it. And then we'd say, well, this song sounds better in this person's voice and this one sounds better in that voice. So if two of them really liked a song, they'd kind of have to go <laughs> battle it out for who got the song. And I didn't realize how it felt to them because we would just get the tracks and listen and go, oh, this should go to this character or that. But they were on the other end going, Oh no, I wanted that song that went to this person, you know? So it was really fun in the sense that it gave them a crash course in what it's like to be a recording artist and how little control you have and what um, happens to your music in this way. And then I had these rehearsals where I really worked on their emotional relationships and arcs with each other, because I think, especially with Maggie and Grace with Dakota Johnson and Tracy Ellis Ross, um, we've seen the assistant diva relationship before and we've seen it done really well in Devil Wears Prada. Uh So I didn't want to sort of copy that. I thought 
this was written differently. And what's interesting to me is the intimacy involved with um, assistants and their and the star. Like if you look at really closely at red carpet photos of Beyonce, you'll always see her assistant right there in the background, like holding her shit or fixing her dress or combing her hair or something. And I was like, who is this person? What is that relationship? Like that is fascinating to me because I think what I learned was the bigger a celebrity you become, <coughs> sorry, um, what I learned was the bigger cele- celebrity you become, um, the smaller your circle uh-huh. gets, right? So the bigger celebrity you become, the more lonely uh-huh. your life gets in a way. Yeah, how can you have friends? The circle of people who are allowed yeah. in, yeah, they get smaller and smaller. And this assistant who would normally just be doing certain tasks gets this unprecedented access to your life, right? And they're there during your most lonely. They're there at the earliest in the morning. They're there late at night. They listen to you ramble. They're there when you're drunk. They're there when you're sober. Like they can gain access to your innermost um, secrets in a way that I think I didn't really think about before. Like the, the celebrity is on guard all the time because so many people want something from them. But this assistant can't get anything from them you know it's their job to literally just do what the celebrity wants and so they get this sort of are they friends are they not friends like someone's paying the other so it doesn't feel like a real friendship there's a definite power imbalance and yet this person might be their only friend in the world in a weird way and that to me was really unique and interesting between their Mm -hmm. relationships yeah that's such a good um, point about the devil wears Prada that that trope has been done so many times and kind of returning to what we were talking about earlier, it is essentially a patriarchal story because it pits women against each other where there's competition of resources for, um, you know, success and there's, Mm -hmm. um, animosity and, um, rather than mutual support. And I actually went into this film a little bit worried because I love Tracy Ellis Ross so much and find her to be such a charming character and everything she does, I think is hilarious and great. And so I was kind of worried that she was going to be unlikable. And I was like, Oh no, don't be, don't be like too much of a diva because I I don't want it to be hard to like you. And she was so (laughs) wonderful and easy to watch. And, and, you know, she, she actually has a friendship with Margaret and it's hard for her to name it that, and perhaps it's hard for, um, either of them to admit it that at sometimes because Margaret is definitely her employee and there is still a power dynamic at play. But um, it was like really beautiful because they had this intimacy and um, it was very special. I agree. I agree. I um, I mean, I don't think Tracy Ellis Ross could be unlikable in anything <laughs> right. she does, but it was really, there were moments when she would like have a full blown tantrum as his character and I would find myself just like in tears of laughter at the monitor. And so I was like, okay, like how far can she push it before we're just like, Oh, shut up lady. And pretty far, you know, she can get, she can go really far and you still never lose her. Like she just, um, has that way of knowing right where that line is and getting right Uh up to it. But, um, she is really, really fun to watch be a diva too. Cause you know, we do go to these movies for, for those larger than life characters. Like, 
in real life, you wouldn't want to be friends with the music icon. They seem very complicated and, and difficult. But in the movies, it's really fun to watch it. Um, I wanted to return a little bit and talk to you about uh, the casting, because as you mentioned, the got Tracy Ellis Ross and Dakota Johnson, not fanning. <laughs> um, Dakota makes fanning would have been amazing, too. <laughs> and, uh, Ice Cube is in this movie. Like there are yes. so many uh, hilarious and amazing stars. So, what was the casting process like? Well, I like really had my eyes on Ice Cube from the beginning because he's just, I think, somebody I grew up admiring so much. And then um, I didn't know he was like so comedically gifted. And he, you know, you can tell from his movies, but. Then you meet him and he he will improv things that will just have you in stitches. He will just um, bring so much more to it. And I thought this movie, you know, I was such a fan of Notting Hill. And one thing about Notting Hill was it was so difficult to really pull off and such an accomplishment to convince people that um, this person's the biggest movie star in the world, right? And and they had Julia Roberts playing the biggest movie star in the world. And it was barely, barely worked. So I was like, how am I going to really convince people that Grace Davis is the biggest music star in the world? And I really felt like the more musicians like Diplo is in there, as you said, and Ice Cube. And the more music industry people and musicians that were there, the more it was going to feel authentic and true. And the world of it was really going to come alive. And so... Um, for for many reasons, I had my eyes on Ice Cube and was so beyond thrilled when he said yes. And also, you know, would like screenshot my phone when Cube would be calling me and like just, <laughs> just kind of have these moments of like, I made it. This is my life. Talking to Ice Cube. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just so bananas that you're just like, wait, what's happening? And so, uh, yeah, you just get those. And then, June Diane Raphael, who brings a whole different type of comedy to the movie and is equally, you know, riveting and hilarious in her um, take on on the sort of like the pool girl. She sort of had the sake oh of being gosh. the female Kato Kalin. Like she was just like, you know, what if she was just really lazy? And we realized as we were talking to each other that that was pretty radical because women aren't allowed to just be lazy in a movie like just just lay around lazy ambitionless like there's haven't seen it you know what I mean like you don't get to do that you have to be like secretly witty or secretly smart or secretly trying to achieve something and she just didn't she was just happy to wear the designer cast offs and just you know lay out by the pool and it was really a hilarious take so that was um so fun to run with her on that one and oh my god who else I feel like Mark Evan Jackson was so funny he's always um I had worked with him on Brooklyn Nine-Nine and he was so sharp he can like take any dialogue and really make it uh sing and really have you just buckled over so watching him and Cube sort of go through this um improv rant in of him trying to convince Tracy to come to Vegas was one it was just pure joy <laughs> um yeah so I think that the that storyline is um really challenging because you know the movie brings up and teases out a lot of the 
pressures on women after they've, you know, hit 40 and are asked essentially to disappear from public life. And um, one option to continue to have a career if you're a celebrity singer is to go to Vegas and like Celine Dion or um, Shania Twain have a residency. And <laughs> Um, or like Gwen Stefani or like who's it? It's like I feel like it's happening to younger and younger women. Yeah. And you're like, what's happening here? I know next to like Taylor Swift will be like literally 29 and taking up residency. <laughs> it's dark. Um and and that is um certainly an accomplishment if you if you wanna like kick ass every night for years and entertain millions of people that's a great that's a great trajectory to go down but it kind of highlights the way that women really lose creative agency and if you want to make something new it's going to be really hard to um to start that over and to essentially like you were saying to take that risk of i mean if you're already that big of a name you can't you can't just make an album that's you know, your new shit. <laughs> you can't, you can't just play around in the studio and be like, well, I'm obviously a genius songwriter. So let's see what I come up with. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It is a, it's such a weird um, thing about on that Vegas residency. I do have to say one of the most incredible moments that happened was when Tracy took me and Kelvin and Zoe and our producer and our writer uh, all to Vegas to see her mom in concert. And we all like got to go to a Diana Ross concert and watch uh, her just, you know, blow away this crowd. And I learned so much watching Tracy watch her mom sing. And then we all mm. got to go backstage and of course meet Diana Ross where we all just were too scared to say anything and just sat there in awe of her. Um, and it was really, it's just one of those moments where you just think, what is my life right now? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like how, how did this happen? And this is amazing and awesome. And, um, but it really did show me like how hard Diana Ross works, you know, like she just works incredibly hard is all always sort of fine tuning and fixing. And her voice is incredible because of her dedication to keeping it clean, you know? And, um, yeah, you just realize that the people who are icons and superstars, are for a reason because they they put in that extra obsessive effort to get there you know oh yeah absolutely. yeah and that really ties it back to the character of maggie so well because it, um you know having talent is incidental to um being successful if you're not putting in the work and with maggie she's obsessive about um production and you know, comes out even when she's not producing. She has an encyclopedic knowledge of everyone who's ever written a song and who produced them and who they were fucking at the time. And <laughs> this is this is the kind of um, love that I think is going to relate to a lot of young women more than the kind of love that's depicted in rom coms, because so many of us are um, out here hustling and just trying to mm -hmm. like make a career out of what we were all told we were supposed to do what we love. And, you know, it's um, really hard to make a career of doing what you love for a lot of us. And so there's, there's so many people who are finding ways to dedicate themselves um, 
just to be on all the time. Yeah, it's really, uh, it is a lot. And yet everybody who, if you're doing the right thing, I think it doesn't feel um, like hard. You know, it feels like your passion and you're doing it because you um, are so excited by it and you, um, you know what I mean? It is that I thing. Do. I just really are, related to that character. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm the editor-in-chief of a lesbian website. <laughs> like, I, I get to talk to directors. I get to watch movies before they come out and talk to directors about who I like. I'm completely floored by and impressed by. I am living my dream so much, but it's like such a niche, <laughs> such a strange market to corner. And I take so much dedication, which I'm happy to to put into it because like, I live for this shit. But yeah, yeah that's why I no, was. No, it's exactly really, right. Like you yeah. are obviously doing what you're meant to be doing because you are doing it at all hours <laughs> of the night. It's like, you know, so late there right now. And you're just like smiling and cheery and happy to like, you know, do this. It's great. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, not for nothing. I might be like about to have my period or something, but I was like <laughs> crying when I started the movie because I was like, this movie is so good. And I actually Aww. get to like watch it and get paid to watch movies. Like, what is my <laughs> life? Everything is so perfect. <laughs> it's way better than like we working at the movie theater and watching movies for free. <laughs> I feel like we all are just like, you know, I get those screeners in the mail now, and I'm always like, I just like burst into tears when I get them because all I wanted was like to watch movies as many as possible for free. (laughs) And I remember working for people and they'd get those screeners and just throw them in the corner. And I'd just be like, why? I'm dying to see those. And I can't have $14 to go to the movie theater. And you're just checking it in the corner. And it's just like, oh my God, it's so, it's such a great privilege to get those movies now and get to see them all. I agree so much. It is definitely the best part of, um, yeah, working in media, just like getting to watch TV and movies. Um, obviously, I'm obsessed with TV and movies. At any rate, <laughs> thank um, God you are. I really related to <laughs> Maggie's love for her work and and like um, the the relationships that her love for her work built with, with the the people that she loved. Um, so yeah, it was just very authentic to me I loved it (laughs) so um for um you know right before I hit record you and I had spoken um a little bit about the way that you were um the way that you got to work with press and you had mentioned that when your movie late night came out they weren't intentionally putting you in front of LGBT press. And I thought that was really interesting. And I was wondering if you could speak um, to us a little bit about um, what, what it means to have um, a movie that isn't about lesbians and doesn't feature a lesbian storyline, but which is directed by a lesbian. And so has, you know, it has your own vision and it has your own take. Um, Tell us a bit about, you know, why you think that is compelling for audiences that wouldn't necessarily be um, reflected on screen in this case? I know. It's such an interesting question, right? I remember, I mean, this is 
a decades old question now is what makes a lesbian movie? Is it the content or is it the the crew, you know, like if it's made by all lesbians, but it's a heterosexual story, is it still a lesbian movie? And, you know, film festivals and gay and lesbian film festivals have wrestled with this question for, for a long time. Um, I don't know. I mean, to me, both movies have such a lesbian love relationship between the two women yes. that is, you know, not spoken or, or romantic, but there is like deep love, you know, Absolutely. and even the arcs like of, you know, it's Maggie and Grace and then they're together and then they break up and then they make up, you know, like, so it's all, it all follows the same arcs as a rom-com. It's just two women, but they're not um, gay, you know? <laughs> so that's like, you know, it's all, it's so interesting. I don't they have know. the intimacy with each other. Yeah, for sure. Like all, you know, I think certainly in my experience all female friendships have their their intimacy with each other and you know I don't know I really I, I don't know if it's just um you know you get so little control over the publicity and how, how the movie is rolled out that um I don't know if it was like oh because because to be fair like I was a juror um at Outfest one year where some of the movie did not have gay content and people were pissed, you know, like, but especially I think if you're going to a gay and lesbian film festival, you want there to be queer content on screen in front of you all the time, you know? And so, which I absolutely get to. So, um, so I think it was, you know, I don't know. I think it's a tricky thing. Like if we say to the queer community, here's a movie I made, this is for you, but then the content on screen is not reflective of any queer experience. And, that's not cool either. You know what I mean? So I think it's a tricky line to walk. Yeah. I think in the case of this movie, it is definitely um, really a movie that is going to speak to a lot of women because the, um, the characters are just so three-dimensional and powerful and there's no element of the male gaze. There's never um, objectification or dumbing down even though the yeah. characters are beautiful and um, like easy to watch, compelling, they're not um, they're not sexualized. They're not objects. So it is um, really interesting because you do have to fight that everywhere. You know, like there were definitely some shots set up where I'd say, mm, "This shot makes me uncomfortable. Let's not do it this way. Let's do it this way." You know, and yeah, you're always kind of fighting like a you know uh the male gaze of the dp or the male gaze of the operator or the male gaze, you know that you're like okay like i still need to communicate to you and to you how to not do this thing that i <laughs> am not you know and it was a really it was Let's interesting <laughs> they were super feminist and really cool guys but like just didn't know what they didn't know you know and right. we're like and I was saying simple things like don't cut her head off, you know, like it feels weird to me when you cut oh the character's head off. <laughs> and they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, okay. But, you know, it just wasn't coming naturally because they're not thinking of those things, you know, the and way that, we were constantly. Yeah, that just it brings it back so much to the, the question of what makes a, a lesbian or LGBT friendly movie because when every shot is um, – sort of reframed away from what we are used to seeing to this 
set of fresh eyes where you can right. watch a movie and you don't feel um, you don't feel on guard for like surprise uh, misogyny. <laughs> you know, you're not like no misogyny yeah. is not lurking around the corner <laughs> waiting to like steal yeah. your lap. <laughs> I know it is a whole. I remember on um, Transparent, you know, we wanted to shoot the sex scenes from the female gaze, and that oh. was like it was so hard. All the unlearning and relearning we had to do for that um, first season to be filmed that way. It was really, but yeah, you're right. Like, you know, women were harmed in the making of this movie. Yeah. Like, <laughs> just saying a lot. <laughs> yeah, it really is sadly saying a lot. Um, like no misogyny is going to sneak up on you and disappoint you. <laughs> That's, that is also sadly saying a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no, and no surprise lesbophobia or homophobia. I mean that it, it's it's so funny how often we're used to seeing punched lines and uh, that are punching down, and so it's um, it's never really uh, surprising when when that kind of content comes up. It's just like, um, you know, you're kind of used to the death by a thousand cuts of popular media being not made for you, um, and so yeah, I think that when we think about what makes what what is the unique gaze of a lesbian director. One of those things is um, telling stories that exactly that you're saying, no, no women were harmed in the making of this. <laughs> Definitely yeah, makes saying, it fun to watch. Um, they are texting me saying that Ashley is saying I have to do this other. Oh, time movie. to wrap it up. <laughs> okay. I think so, but I want to keep talking to you or maybe we could, get back together again and talk more yeah yeah i'd love to talk to you about movies any day (laughs) this has been a great conversation i know well thank you for the work you do and for this show and for keeping everybody informed and keeping us all together as a community in one place it's not an easy undertaking well um i'm so excited to um to see how this movie launches this is kind of weird times for a movie to come out um, it is. It is. Will people be time. able to stream it or will they be yeah. going to theaters? No, we're not going to go to theaters. It feels irresponsible to go to theaters right now. It just feels like I don't want anybody to risk their life to see a movie oh, as much yeah. as I love movies. Um, <laughs> but we're taking the virus very seriously and I hope everybody does too. Um, if you do want to see it on the big screen, there are drive ins that are showing it, which is pretty awesome. Okay, that's but otherwise, stream it in the safety of your own home but um but please don't watch it on a computer with computer speakers like the music is so good it deserves big speakers so that is very um, true at least try to watch it on a bigger format or with external speakers hooked up if you can all right well thank you so much nisha appreciate you thank you thanks so good to talk to you Bye. bye Thanks for listening to the After Ellen podcast. Give us a follow at After Ellen. Let us know how you think we're doing and what you want to hear on future episodes of the After Ellen podcast.